and you all can be seated. Uh, you can open up your copy of the Bible, if you have one, to Deuteronomy chapter 9. So that's the fifth book of the Bible, uh, and you'll go to the ninth chapter of that book. Uh, we took a break for a handful of weeks through December uh, from this book of the Bible. We started several months ago, took some time to do some Advent sermons about the coming of Jesus into our world and his eventual return. Uh, last Sunday, we jumped back into the book of Deuteronomy, and Pastor Larry preached an excellent sermon from from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which if you didn't get to listen to that, it's always available on our, our church website or podcast feeds. You can go find that and listen to that. I would encourage you to do so. Uh, I was not here that Sunday. Some of you may not. Uh, so you may be coming in kind of cold uh, into uh, the reading of this text today. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 9, and we're going to have an ambitious task. We're actually going to try to go through a chapter and a half to start the new year. Uh, so you can pray for me and us while we do that, uh, that we're not here till like 1 o'clock or something like that. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll give some background of where we're at in Deuteronomy here in a moment. But I wanted to, to mention a phrase to help us get into the subject matter of this text. It's a phrase that's become increasingly common uh, to be used, uh, sometimes in some inappropriate ways, but the last few decades even, in our culture at least, it's the, the phrase, and I'm not going to go into controversial territory with this, so when you hear this phrase, don't get nervous, but it's the whitewashing of history if you've heard this term before, uh, that uh, what people mean when they talk about the whitewashing of history is they, what they mean is that sometimes when there's been, uh, well, there can be an individual or maybe a group or sometimes a, a nation or a bigger group of people who, as they look back on history, as they look back on their own story of their lifetime or maybe generations that have gone by, uh, they can either intentionally or unintentionally sometimes look back on that history and whitewash it, meaning that they can oftentimes forget some of the, the dark sides of the ways we operated, uh, sometimes intentionally remove those from the record, uh, write them out of history of our own narratives or out of history books, things like that. And as we whitewash the history and the failures of ourselves, we then I think naturally in our sinful inclinations, we emphasize our virtue. We try to celebrate, well, this is what we did well. This is, what, this is why we did that. We assume the best of ourselves. And while I think in our world today, the opposite of whitewashing happens too. Like there's, it's becoming increasingly in vogue to attribute evil where there is no evil and to assign fault where there was no fault. That is a real thing going on today. The whitewashing of history is still a real thing in our own personal lives and in the, the, the lives of the groups that we live in. Uh, we often look back on our history with kind of rose-colored glasses or, or, or in a, a flattering way to ourselves. And I mention that because in this text, we're going to see Moses, who's going to be the speaker of all the words that we read today. We're going to see Moses address his fellow Israelites, the nation of Israel, about what he, how he anticipates when they finally get into the promised land, when they finally get in, he anticipates that they're going to look, be tempted to look back on their history as a people and in a whitewashed way, to look back on it and think, you know what, like we weren't really that bad. Like I think we actually did good and, and God was rewarding us even and giving us this land. And Moses is going to try to head that off and say, no, like there's no whitewashing of history here. We're going to face it. We're going to acknowledge it. And, it. and I would encourage us as we listen to these words of Moses here in a moment and, and some of his, this is part of a bigger farewell speech that he's giving throughout this whole book of Deuteronomy. As we listen into it, as you listen into it, I'd encourage you to listen in to this section of the speech today that we're going to read, not just as a curious historical observer, like, man, that's interesting to think about what Moses said to those people, but listen to it, hear the word as it's read, as a word to you as well. As someone who is going to face the same temptations, whether you realize it or not, you maybe even are facing them now, the same temptations to whitewash your history, uh, to look back on your life and to forget, intentionally or unintentionally, some of the dark sides that are in your own story. The, the sins that have been in your own past, and, that, and I will seek to do the same for myself. So Moses is going to, where we're picking up in the book of Deuteronomy, this is going to be the words of Moses to his fellow Israelites. If you've not been with, any of, uh, for, with us for any of these sermons, what the book of Deuteronomy is, 
It's a 120-year-old Moses who's about to die. Uh, The oldest Israelite who's been the leader of the Israelites for 40 years now. He's trying to prepare this generation or two coming behind him to finally at long last go into the land of Canaan. uh, To enter into combat initially with the Canaanites and then to live in the land as well. And he gives them this long speech or even a series of speeches throughout the book of Deuteronomy. He tries to do a lot of different things. But in this section that we're going to hear today, from chapter 9 and then part of chapter 10, Moses is going to anticipate that whitewashing of history that his fellow Israelites may want to do. And he's going to try to head that out, or head that off, nip it at the bud before it ever uh, takes place. So my ambition this morning in, in this sermon is going to be simple. It's going to be to read this text. It is long, so I'd encourage you to like try to focus in and and zone in, follow along. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to try to explain it briefly, which inevitably when we're covering a chapter and a half, there's going to be questions that come up in your mind I won't have time to touch. You can talk to me afterward, talk to others afterward, but I'm going to try to read it, explain it, and then briefly at least apply it as we start this new year. So what are some things that the Lord may want to do with this text in my heart, your heart, our heart as a church family? So I'm going to read from chapter 9, verse 1, all the way to chapter 10, verse 11. It almost is on four pages of my Bible. I don't know how your Bible is set up. So it is a lot, uh, but it all goes together. And I think you'll see Moses is going to recount to his fellow Israelites why they need to be careful and resist this temptation to whitewash their history, to, to face reality. So follow along with me, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, You are to cross over the Jordan today to go into dispossessed nations, greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water, And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain And the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my my two hands and broke them before your eyes. 
Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain at Tabra also and at Massa and at Kibroth Hataava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I've given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you've redeemed through your greatness, whom you've brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. At that time the Lord said to me, Cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before the ten commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are as the Lord commanded me. People of Israel journeyed from Be'eroth Bene Ja'akan to Masra. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gudgadah, uh, and from Gudgadah to Jatbatha, a land with brooks of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. This is the word of the Lord. So I have read the text. I want to try to explain it briefly, uh, if that's possible, uh, to you. Uh, and then we will try to apply it. Uh, if you go back to the beginning of what we read, the start of chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, that first little paragraph of this speech, they're, they're reminding us of the setting of Deuteronomy and what was taking place. I already kind of shared a little bit about it, but if you look back at those beginning couple of verses, it's reminding us of this scene, that there's this new generation of Israelites, or a couple generations of Israelites, who are about to, he says, cross over the Jordan River today to go in and dispossess, to fight against these Canaanites. And these are intimidating people, these sons of Anak, these giants that would have even some been left in this land with fortified cities. That's the setting. Moses is trying to prepare them for that, to fight against these people and then to live in the land that they used to live in. They're about to finally go into this promised land that God had promised Abraham centuries and centuries beforehand. 
And Moses is reminding them, as he does throughout Deuteronomy, he's reminding them even in that first paragraph that God is going to give them this land. That is going to happen in the days that, that follow this speech. That is going to happen. God is going to give them this land. He says he's going to consume their enemies. He's going to destroy their enemies. He says that he's going to subdue their enemies as they go into this land. And he's going to use, you see in verse 3, he's going to use the Israelites to do that. He's not just going to do it purely on his own. He's going to do it through them. But God is going to do it. He is going to give them this land. They will be, perhaps for the first time in their history as a nation, they're going to be victors. They're going to, be, they're going to have won the battle, right? They're going to have conquered someone else. And you may have heard the saying before uh, that history is written by the victors. Have you heard this phrase before? History is written by the victors. When we win a battle, when we win a war, oftentimes what happens is that the people who won get to write the history books. They're the ones who get to kind of reframe what took place and get to try to remember uh, how they see things and sometimes dismiss what is actually true at times, and as the victors of this soon to happen, this conquest they're about to enter into, it's going to be tempting for them as the new victors to write history the way they want to write it, uh, to start to see their backstory as a people the way that is flattering to them, uh, to, to write the history books, so to speak, in ways that make them look good. And they're going to be tempted to whitewash their own history when they're living in the land. You see that temptation in verse 4, don't you? Verse 4 is key to understanding the whole rest of what we just read. Verse 4, Moses is anticipating that when his fellow Israelites go into the land, when they've maybe lived there a while and they're settled in it, he anticipates that they're going to say to themselves in their heart, verse 4, after God has thrust out these people before them, what he anticipates they're going to say to themselves in their own heart is, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord brought in me, brought me in to possess this land. That's what, how he anticipates they're going to start to view their history, is that, man, us living in this land is God giving us a reward for our righteousness because we were so good for him, because we were obedient for him. That is why God has given us this land. And what Moses knows, and this definitely becomes true, is that as they get settled into this land, as victory is granted to them, they're going to start to see themselves less as sinful people who were saved by God. And they're going to start to view themselves as righteous people who are rewarded by God. That's how they're going to start to see themselves. That's, how they're going to, that's going to be the narrative that's going on in their minds and their hearts is to start to see themselves as righteous people who've been rewarded. And rather than seeing this land that they're about to possess and their homes and their towns and the wells and the vineyards and all these things that they're going to get to enjoy the land, rather than seeing it as a gift from God, they're going to start to see it almost like a paycheck that they earned by, becoming, by being obedient enough, trusting enough. And Moses anticipates that. He anticipates them saying that to themselves, them whitewashing their own history and reading out their sin from their, writing out their sin from their history. And then verses 5 and 6 are Moses bluntly, like he does not pull punches at all with these people. He's very direct with them, blunt with them, which we need at times uh, for people to be with us. Verses 5 and 6 are Moses saying, there ought to be none of that idea when we get into the land. When you, and he knows he's not going, but when you all get into the land, he's saying, do not say that to yourself. Do not believe that lie that you are living in this land as a reward for your righteousness. You see it in verse 5. He clearly, no question says, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. That if you think that's the reason, even later in the future, Israelites, if you think that's why we came to the land, it's not. Like it, it has nothing to do with us being righteous. Verse 6, he says very similar thing, doesn't he? He says again, he's like reiterating it to these fellow Israelites. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. It's not even that they're just neutral. It's not even just that they're like some, like we did some good, some bad, and we're neutral. He's saying, not only did not, is God not giving this to us because we've been righteous, but we are stubborn. Like we have been disobedient again and again and again and again and again towards God. 
He, he's wanting this to ring in their ears. That's why he says it a couple of times. This was a speech, after all, that he was giving. If they zone out in what we call verse 5, I think he brings it back around in verse 6, say, know this, it is not because we're righteous. It has nothing to do with that. But if, if and when God gives us this land, it is not because we are righteous people. And then what happens, the rest of what we read, from verse 7 and on through the end, if, if I'm understanding what Moses is saying correctly, what, what follows from verse 7 on is Moses kind of like a skilled attorney, a skilled lawyer bringing evidence before the court to say, if you all think like we're righteous, if, you think, if you're tempted even in the future to think, man, God's rewarding us for our righteousness, let me provide some evidence to you to contradict that. Let, let me remind you, clear as day, point you back to things that have already happened, that you know have happened, as evidence of how stubborn, disobedient, sinful, distrusting we have been as a people. And he goes to great lengths in this speech to establish that their rebellion against God was both quick and that it was consistent. So it started early, and then it kept happening again and again and again. So, in the, the lawyer metaphor, exhibit A that he brings out to the court of the Israelites to see that he spends the most time on is what happened with the golden calf at Mount Sinai. This would have been 40 years before when he's actually saying it. Some of the people that are hearing this wouldn't have even been alive then, or they would have been kids back then, but they would have been very well aware of what took place back at Mount Sinai with this golden calf. And Moses is trying, by, by going back to that story, he's trying to show that the disobedience of them as the Israelites happened very quickly. It wasn't even like it took a long time to, to gain steam. It was like from day one. Of, of them as a people, that they defied God. So he spends a lot of time starting in verse 7 and on. Verse 8 references this location called Horeb, which I, I've reminded us throughout Deuteronomy, when you see that here, Mount Sinai, those are the same place, same area. He's pointing them back to what happened at Mount Sinai. And if you look at verse 12, he, it says, he's talking about how he had gone up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments on the stones from the Lord. And after 40 days on the mountain, he says in verse 12, that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down quickly for the people whom you... Notice he says whom you... It's like when a wife says, Husband, go deal with your kids. Like he says, uh, God, like Moses, the people you brought out from Egypt have acted corruptly. Then notice he says, God says, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Moses reiterates that to them down in verse 16. At the end of verse 16, Moses says to the Israelites, when he's come back down the mountain, he says, you have turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. Think about this. They were literally at the, at the base of Mount Sinai where God had just spoken to them. And no matter than a couple weeks while Moses is up on the mountain, they have already broken one of the core uh, of the Ten Commandments of making an idol, right? Within a couple weeks. Like the ink is not even dry on the covenant that God's established with them yet, right? Even though he wrote it on stone, the ink's not dry yet on the covenant. And they're rebelling against him already, like in a grievous way, in a, an awful way. They're impatient, they're distrusting, they're disobedient. And Moses, when he comes down from the mountain, you see in verse 17, to show them visibly how they have so quickly and dismissively broken this covenant with God, he takes those two stone tablets that God himself has written on and he smashes them on the ground for the whole nation to see. Not out of rage, not out of anger, but to show how quick we have disregarded him. How, how quick we have been dismissed. Even though he just rescued us out of bondage and slavery no weeks before this. Even though he has just spoken to us. Given us these commands to follow. We've so quickly disobeyed him. They were, they were quick in their disobedience. And Moses knows because God has spoken to him on the mountain in verse 13 saying... I've seen this people, it's a stubborn people. Verse 14, God says to him, let me alone that I may destroy them and blot their name out from heaven. That word destroy was what had been used for the Canaanites back at the beginning of the chapter, right? That God's gonna destroy them. And now God's saying to Moses, 
I'm about to destroy these people, my very people. I'm about to destroy them because of their rebellion against me. Moses knows this. He knows that the anger of God is rightfully directed toward his people for their disobedience that was quick. But their disobedience, it's not as if it just happened once. They're at Mount Sinai and then, oh, we learned our lesson. Like Moses came down, smashed those things, went back up. God granted him some more and we put it in the Ark of the Covenant and now we go on our way and that's behind us. And now we live righteously the rest of our way towards Canaan. Moses brings out exhibit B, C, D, and E next. And he does them really quick so we couldn't miss them. But if you look at verses 22, 23, and 24, he wants them to know not just that their disobedience has been quick, that it just happened fast, but that it happened often also. That it was a pattern, that it was just the norm of how they engaged with God. If you look at verses 22 and 23, He references these locations that may mean nothing to us, but when the people heard this, they would have known, oh, he's bringing that up that we did, and that up that we did, and that up. Like when he says at Tabra, Tabra, the first one, exhibit B, so to speak, as a lawyer bringing out the case, that happened. You could look back in Numbers 11 where the Israelites complained. It seems like a fairly generic complaint. We don't know exactly what the nature of it was. But you read the start of Numbers 11, and whatever happened and whatever they were complaining about there, God brought a fire around the outside edges of their camp to consume people. Like that happened. Like their complaints had happened at Taborah. Numbers chapter 11. Then he says, Moses says to these people, and at Massa. What that is referring to, what would have come to their mind is what took place back in Exodus 17, where some of you are familiar with this story, where they had complained about not having water enough to drink. And God got angry with them. He, he talked about how they are testing him as their Lord, as their God. And there is judgment that came upon them. When he references this mouthful of a location to say in verse 22 of Kibroth Hata'ava, What would have come to mind, it actually happened in Numbers 11 also. The same time the first one happened. At Kibroth Hata'ava, they complained about wanting meat like they had had back in Egypt. They had the audacity to say, hey, back when we were slaves back there, you know, Moses, we got to eat meat at least. Like, can you get us some meat? Can you you take that up with God? And when they complained about wanting meat, it's like God then, like, buried them in quail like in meat like just brought it like where it was knee deep almost around their camp and they got sick and there was this plague that came upon them for their complaints against God that happened and Moses is bringing that out as exhibit D exhibit E is the last one verse 23 that he brings up when he says that when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea and said to go up and take possession of the land I've given you Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord and did not believe him or obey his voice. If you were here back when we started Deuteronomy, we covered that actually in Deuteronomy chapter 1. What that's talking about is when they had left Sinai, they had come through all these incidents, they had come over near the promised land, and God told them, all right, it's time to go and fight. Like, it's time to go take this land. They sent spies in. Spies come back, most of them cowardly, distrusting, and the nation believes them. And God judges them for their refusal to go in and fight by giving them four decades of wandering in the wilderness. So Moses is bringing out exhibits B, C, D, and E to say, not only fellow Israelites have we been quick to disobey God, we have been consistent in disobeying God. It has been the pattern of our life. So it is no wonder then in verse 24, the very next verse, Moses says to them, You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. This has always been true of us. I I think he would include himself in this. This has always been true of us as a nation, that we have been rebellious against the Lord. Even back in verse 7 of chapter 9, right? He he says... uh, Remember and do not forget how the Lord provoked your God, or how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. He says, from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, like where I'm speaking now, you have been rebellious against the Lord your God. He's saying from day one and throughout, even as he's speaking these words, we have been rebellious against 
God. And so he, he's wanting them to never, ever, ever believe the lie when they finally get into the land that, oh, this is a reward for our righteousness. He's trotting out all these clear, undeniable evidence. We have not been righteous. There's no righteousness to reward. Like we have been defiant. We've been distrustful. We've been disobedient towards God. So if and when he gives us this land, it will be all of grace toward us. It will not be because of our merit. It will not be because of anything we have deserved. And thankfully, through this text, there's a couple hints of why God does give them the land. Because he's, he's making it very clear, I'm not giving this to you because you're righteous. Like that's the main point he's wanting to get across. It's not because you're righteous. But you see a couple hints in this text of why he does give the land to them. First one you see, I'll just mention these briefly. And note that none of these three reasons have anything to do with the goodness of the Israelites, like their obedience. But the reasons that are mentioned or at least alluded to in this text are one is that God has made promises that he intends to keep, right? Uh, he, that happens in verse, the third verse that we read, chapter 9, verse 3. Moses is saying that God's going to destroy your enemies. He's going to drive them out and make them perish as the Lord promised you. So God has made these promises long ago and he has every intent to keep them, right? And even uh, verse 11 of chapter 10, the very last verse that we read, he, Moses is saying what the Lord said to him. And the way today's text ends is God saying to Moses, this is back at Mount Sinai, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So God has pledged himself. God has said long ago, I am going to give this land to these people. And God keeps his promises. So that's reason number one that is in this text that God does give them the land. It's not because of righteousness. It's because he made promises that he intends to keep. The second reason that, that he is going to provide this land for them is because he wants to, in a sense, defend his reputation, God speaking, defend his reputation. He, he wants to uphold his reputation as a gracious, faithful God. And you see that in the last couple of verses of chapter 9. Moses is making his appeal to God to not destroy the people. And he's saying, remember uh, your servants, verse 27, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, don't regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness. And then Moses anticipates in 28 that the people back in Egypt, if they hear, man, these Israelites who thought they were hot stuff and like leave here and then they go out into the wilderness and God destroys them. Like Moses appealing to God saying, think what they're going to say and believe about you as God. If, they, if you said you were gonna, that you're rescuing these people, you're going to go and take them into this land and then you don't do it, People are not going to believe that you're a promise-keeping God. They're not going to believe that you're faithful or capable, maybe, of doing what you said you could do. And, and God cares more. Hear this, rightly. Don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. God cares more about his honor and reputation than he cares about being nice to us. Right? He, he rejoices in being gracious and kind and, and generous to us, but God cares most about his own glory, of his own reputation being upheld. So that's reason number two, is God wants to be viewed not as weak or misleading, but as faithful to his promises and as capable of keeping his promises. And the third reason that he does give them the land is that intercession is made, right? A couple of times, Moses references how he interceded for the nation of Israel, making an appeal to God multiple times for the nation and then for his brother Aaron, specifically saying, God, do not, please do not destroy these people. And God, who has every right and even expresses his right to destroy the nation of Israel, God relents. God doesn't destroy them because intercession is made for them. Uh, and so that's the third reason. He says three times in this text, Moses says, the Lord listened to me. The Lord listened to me. The Lord listened to me. And so God responds to the intercession. Someone praying, interceding for guilty parties. God responds in relenting. So with Moses clearly, I, I hope I've explained what Moses is saying, what he's communicating to these people. I want to briefly at least try to apply this to us, apply this to your life today, to think what does this text have to speak to us? Because we're not on the banks of the Jordan River. We're not about to enter into a conquest against the Canaanites. We're, we're not about to do these things ourselves, but I think it still has great relevance for us. 
And I, I say that because I think all of us as human beings, to some degree or another, and it may fluctuate and rise and fall at different times, but all of us are tempted to whitewash our own stories. Every single one of us. As, as we look back, whether it's our recent past or into our past long ago, all of us are tempted to whitewash the history of our life, uh, to, to see ourselves in a more flattering light than we really should. To, to purposefully put out of our remembrance some of our sins, particularly the grievous ones. To explain away some of the sins that have been in our life as just, oh, that was just a mistake that I made, or that was a, a failure on my part, or there was hard things that were done to me, and that may be real, but that's why I did such and such. We, we explain away our responsibility for our sins. We whitewash our backstories over and over and over again. We do it early on in our lives, even prior to becoming Christians. We do it for certain reasons, I think. Uh, we, we pridefully, sometimes before we're believers, we may think we don't do wrong, right? We may just put on our own glasses to see our own life and think, man, I don't, I don't sin. Like, I don't, I don't disobey God. Like, I do the right things. Like I, and, we, and we are whitewashing, whether we realize it or not, we're whitewashing the backstory of our life, pretending that we have no guilt, pretending that we have no fault, that we are not rebels against God. Or sometimes we whitewash our story, our backstory. We deny our sinfulness prior to becoming a Christian because we think God requires us to be perfect like we think that i need to have a 100 percent. i need to be perfectly righteous person if i'm not that then i'm going to start pretending like these things have not been true in my life that they're not true now i'm going to hide them i'm going to pretend that they're not there i'm going to i'm going to deny them so we we whitewash our stories prior to conversion but ironically sadly i think even after we're converted after we place our faith in Christ, and even sometimes deep into our Christian life, we can actually start whitewashing our backstory again. But it's for different reasons. Like we can start to, when we get settled into the land, so to speak, we've started experiencing the blessing, the favor of God. We've started seeing growth in our Christian life. We've started seeing us put to death certain sins in our life. We can start to view our present realities and then even look back at our, our past and start to think that it wasn't as bad as what it really was. Like, because I know the person I am now, I know how I operate now, and we start to read back onto our story better motives than what were really there. We can start to, when we've been so long operating in grace, we can forget that it's grace. Right? We, we can start to presume upon it. We can start to think that I... If, even if I didn't deserve it then, I deserve it now. And we may not have the audacity to say it, but, but we don't own our sin like we used to. We, we don't think about it. We don't confess it. We don't uh, repent of it. it. It feels like that's just some past part of my life that is not true anymore. But I would point out to you, God is speaking through Moses in this text to saved, in a sense, people. Right? People who have been rescued already, and the situation he's really speaking into, Moses, in this situation, is to people who are already in the land. Like people who are already experiencing the blessing of God, the provision of God, the, the gracious uh, provision of the, this land to live in. That's who he's speaking to and saying to them, as people who have been in grace a while, who've been recipients of that, do not forget that this is all of grace. Do not forget that this is a gift of God to you. I was thinking, we're just coming fresh off Christmas. Uh, I hope this analogy is helpful to some. It was just one that came to mind. Some of you, I bet, got some Christmas presents at Christmas that you always get the same gift from the same person. Do you, anybody have things like that? Like your grandma always gives you 50 bucks or that somebody gives you such and such nice present. And it's just like clockwork. Like you get it every Christmas. You know, okay, I don't even need to, why'd you even wrap this? Like I know exactly what's in here. Like you just know what it is. And it's a gift still, right? The person is still giving it to you. You didn't earn that from them by being a good son or a great nephew or whatever. Like you, you didn't earn that from them. It's still a gift, but you have received it so much that it starts to feel like a given. 
Like that it starts to feel like something that you, even if you wouldn't think you've earned, you think of it as something you deserve. That's just, oh yeah, like that's coming to me just because I exist and I showed up at Christmas and I, 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 I deserve that almost. And you receive, I think sometimes when you receive a gracious gift so much, so frequently, so regularly, you start to lose sight, start to lose a grip of reality that this is still a gift the thousandth time you receive it. Or you're not a thousand. 50th time you've received it. It's still a gift. It's not a paycheck, right? But with God, sometimes we experience grace so much in his life. We've been helped. We've been forgiven so much. We've been enabled to put sin to death in our life. We've been blessed by him with so much that we start to just presume upon it as something I deserve, as something that's just a given to me and we forget. This is God. Every bit of it is God graciously giving this to me. Even if he's giving it to me another year of life, another Sunday to worship with my church family, another blessing of God, it is still a gift of him. And so this is not just whitewashing of our sin and starting to pretend like it's not there. It's not just something that happens prior to conversion. It's not just something that happens right around it. It can happen even deep into our Christian life. We can be tempted to whitewash our story. And what happens when we start thinking of God's grace to us as a paycheck rather than a gift, there's a couple of unhealthy things that start to happen in us. Like one, just on an interpersonal level, when we start whitewashing our backstory and denying sin that was present then or is present now, is we start to look down our noses at other people. We start to think that I'm better than them. I'm somehow, even if I don't have the audacity to say it, I think that I am more deserving of God's mercy and God's forgiveness than them. That is a danger that runs in, through our hearts that we can start to look down our noses at others. In our relationship with God, when we, when we deny or forget our sin, we lose sight of it. When, it. when it comes to our relationship with God, we can start to become more impressed with ourselves than we are with God. Like we, we start to be more impressed by our ability to do right and to obey and to, to, to do godly things than we are impressed with God showing us mercy and grace, right? But the, the, the worst thing I think that happens when we whitewash our backstory and we, we don't pay attention to our past sinfulness, our present sinfulness, and we're not aware of it, is that we become uh, uninterested in Jesus himself. He, he takes on some peripheral role in our life, right? Like, at best, he is just, he, Jesus just becomes some aid to me who's already a good person. He just kind of helps me get over the hump somehow. And he doesn't seem significant to us. He seems unimportant to us because we are righteous ourselves. we think. We, we have righteousness that we can bring to God to show to him to receive reward. That's how we start to view ourselves. And the higher we esteem ourselves when it comes to righteousness, the less we see a need for Christ. The less we think we even need a Savior. And when we hear about him dying in our place, when we hear about him living for us, when we hear about him interceding for us, it doesn't move the needle at all because we don't even think we need him. Like we, we think that we have enough in our own merit, our own righteousness. So there's dangerous things that can start to happen to us when we whitewash our backs or when we pretend that there is no sin in my life, present or past. But I think the Lord through this text today would want us to, to think of this year ahead uh, as an opportunity, and think of this Sunday in particular as an opportunity to orient our hearts the right way, to make sure we're viewing ourselves the right way, that we're viewing God the right way as we enter into this year. I would encourage you this year and, and start today to stop trying to hide or to minimize the sin that is present in your life. Like we, we do this so often that, that we try to hide it, we try to deny it, we try to conceal it, we try to pretend it's not there if we have sin presently and if we have sin in our past. A lot of times, not if, when we have sin in our past, we try to hide that from people and we don't want people to know that about us because what will they think of me? What would God think of me if I was to truly acknowledge this? But God does not ever ask you to hide or to minimize the sin in your life. In, like he never does in fact he commands you to do the opposite of that like God himself commands you to confess your sins 
God himself commands you to repent of your sins. And you can't confess them, you can't repent of them if you're pretending they're not even there. Like if you pretend they're not even existent, you have to own them. You have to acknowledge the sin that is present in your life now, the sin that has been present in your life in the past. And the good news to you, to me, to us, is that God delights in forgiving sinners, right? That is such a basic message, but we can't hear enough. God forgives sinners, right? If we come to him with righteousness, we're, he turns us, thinking that we have righteousness, he turns us away. The, the people that God receives are people who come to him with their sin, owning it, acknowledging it, saying, here it is, I hate it, I know Christ died for this, take it from me, please forgive me. That is what God forgives. That is the type of person that God shows mercy to. It is not, he does not show mercy and forgiveness to those who are hiding it, who are concealing it, who are whitewashing their story, pretending it's not there. God shows mercy to the contrite to the repentant, to the ones who confess their sin. And I, I, I don't know about you, I'm not con condemning this act at all, but I know there's many people who, as they start a new year, they pick a word or something they want to grow in in the year. That is a good practice to do, okay? Uh, that maybe you, some of you have a word that you have thought through that you want to emphasize. I, I bet very few, if any, people have the word Con that are the desire to become a better confessor of sin in the new year. I'm guessing that doesn't make the short list for most people, but I would want, based on the timing and God's providence of this text on this Sunday, I would want that to be something that we grow in as a church, that I grow in as an individual this year. Is I want to be a better confessor of my sin who is not uh, someone who pretends I need to have it all together or that I, ha that I do have it all together, but that I, I look, I, I pray for the Lord to show things in my life where there's sin, that I pray for him in the spirit of Psalm 139, like search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Like, I, I want to be a better confessor of my sin. I'd encourage you to be a better confessor of your sin. If you don't know where to start with that, if you feel this temptation to whitewash your backstory, whitewash your present story, the place that you can start would just be simply asking the Lord to help you see the sin that's in your life because it's there. Every person in this room, including me, has sin that is present in our life. And sometimes we have a hard time seeing it. Sometimes we have a hard time discerning it. Ask the Lord's help. Ask him to, to prick your conscience more when there's things that you do that are disobedient to him. A way that you then can try to grow in discernment of where there may be sin in your life is to start reading this book. Like this book can read you as much as you can read it. God can show you things in it that are true about yourself that you don't even know. That, that you now know as you read it and hear God confronting, I need to confess, I need forgiveness for that thing I didn't even know I was doing. So pray for the Lord's help, pay attention to your conscience, read his word for guidance. And then a practice I've tried to do, I don't do this remotely consistently, but I, it was brought to mind this week and it renewed my desire to do it. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was a, a pastor in America, kind of the late Puritan age, uh, but he wrote 70 resolutions. I always think of them at the beginning of the year. Uh, he wrote 70 resolutions that he wanted to be resolved to do or to not do in his life. And number 37 of his resolutions, I'm lucky if I do one resolution in a year, but number 37 of his resolutions was he said, resolved to inquire every night as I am going to bed wherein I've been negligent, what sin I've committed, and wherein I have denied myself, also at the end of every week, month, and year. And so he wanted to make it a practice in his life. As he went to bed each night, he wanted to do a quick inventory of his day to think, man, was there some way that I sinned against a brother or sister, or that I sinned against the Lord? And whatever was brought to mind, he would acknowledge that, he would confess that to the Lord, and then ask for forgiveness of that. And he wanted that to be a regular rhythm of his life, I think, so that he didn't start to subtly, unintentionally whitewash his backstory and start to, to think and pretend like there was no sin his life. So I'd encourage you maybe to make a practice of that, as even as you go to bed tonight, to do an inventory of your heart throughout the day uh, and to confess those things to the Lord. But then this is most important. As you confess your sin to the Lord, 
don't let it end there. I so appreciate Pastor Rod leading us and, and praying confession this morning because confession shouldn't just stop at confession and acknowledging our guilt. It should lead us to the place where I can go to know that I have forgiveness, right? Because we're not just trying to get something off my chest. That's not what we're trying to do in confession. We're acknowledging I am guilty. I've sinned against you. I need forgiveness. And then let your heart run to Jesus because he is the place, he is the source of forgiveness that can actually be granted to you, right? Because you are guilty, you are undeserving. And as you confess that to the Lord, I want you to know that there is a Savior who has died for those very sins who has taken the wrath. We deserve to be destroyed. We deserve to be blotted out, like, G, like uh, God said to Moses, like, I'm about ready to blot these people out. That's what we deserve for our sin. But because Christ has died on the cross for our sins and God has raised him from the dead, rather than us being blotted out, what Pastor Rod read for us, Psalm 51 says that rather than us being blotted out, our sins can be right? That, that Christ died for those things. They can be removed from us. We can be cleansed of those things, forgiven of those things. So as you confess sin, let it drive you to Jesus. Let it drive you to him over and over again to know where your mercy and forgiveness can be found. Moses was anticipating that as they got into the promised land of Canaan, that there would come a day where they would view their presence in that land as a reward for their righteousness. Uh, I rejoice in the fact that I was meditating on this yesterday a little bit, that in the greater promised land of heaven and of the new earth, there's not going to be any question of why we are there, right? There's gonna be, there is no one in heaven right now thinking, man, that is so cool that God rewarded me for my righteousness and then brought me to heaven, there's no one that thinks that. There is no one when Jesus returns to earth and sets up the new earth. There's going to be no one in that new earth who has any confusion about this. Who, who thinks, man, like, I'm so glad I was righteous and that I, I earned my ticket to this new earth. Man, that was a good decision on my part. There will be no one that thinks that. It is clear in heaven. It will be clear in the new earth. My prayer is that it will be clear now. This side of heaven, this before we get face death, before we go to heaven, before we go to the new earth, my hope is that it is clear in our hearts now that if we have the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, it is not because of our righteousness. It's because of the death of Christ, the righteousness of Christ that God grants to us. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing one more song and I'll leave us with a word of benediction. You are great listeners. Let's pray. All right, Father in heaven, uh, thank you for this word. Thank you for the words of Moses that he spoke to his fellow Israelites and that were then recorded for us. God, we pray that we would listen to this text, that we would really hear it, that, that we would be confronted with our own tendency to explain away our sin, to conceal it, to deny it, to pretend it's not there that we may face our own guilt, that we may face our stubbornness, our, our wickedness, our disobedience, our distrust. And rather than those things leading us to run from you in fear, that you may blot us out, may we run to you, trusting in your Son, knowing that through him you can blot out our sins. So Father, may we, as we sing this song, as we go about our day, may we bring honor to you with the attitudes of our hearts and the words of our mouth. And we pray this in the name of Christ.